Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center, connecting people to God and each other. We are currently studying verse by verse through the book of Romans. For more information, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co. The rest of us can open up to Romans 12. We're continuing on in our study of the book of Romans. If you're visiting with us, uh, we, we're in the middle of, a, of a, what will take a little more than a year on a study of the book of Romans, just going verse by verse uh, through everything it says, and that's usually how we do it. We take a book of the Bible and go through it verse by verse. And so we find ourselves in Romans 12, and we're at a, a real transition point in the book of Romans. Uh, so, so the first 11 chapters of Romans is, is the Apostle Paul kind of laying out for us what has God done? What are the things that, that God has done? So he's been taking us through, and we've been going at this for five, six months now, of really deep theology. Um, deep, sometimes difficult uh, theology. And, and Paul has been really digging deep into what is going on in God's purpose and plan for humanity. What is it that, that, that is going on, in particular, the redemption of sinful people? Um, and so it's, it's been pretty deep, challenging theology that we've been going through in the first 11 chapters. Well, now Paul makes a transition here. And so in these verses we're going to look at, we're going to look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 today. Paul makes a, a big shift, a big transition. Uh, and he's going to, after spending 11 chapters talking about doctrine and theology, he's going to spend the next five chapters talking to us about what should we do then? Since all of this is true, what should we do? So he's going to talk about practice, how we should live, what, what we should be doing. So, so Romans 1 through 11 is sort of magnifying God's purpose and plan, uh, digging deep into who is God, how is God acting in the world, uh, what has God done, what is his character, uh, how does he act according to that character, and now he's going to begin a response. What should our response be then to that? What should our response be in light of that? And, and what he's going to tell us this morning in this passage is that, that this response is true worship. What our response is to God's actions uh, throughout history is true worship. So if you've got your Bibles open to chapter 12, we're going to read verses 1 and 2. Let's stand up together and we'll read those. Romans 12. Verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. God, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that this word is a, alive. I thank you that through this word, God, we can know you, that we can know your will, we can discern your will, that we can have intimate fellowship with you, we can hear your voice. And so I pray, Lord, that as we meet in this time together this morning, that we would hear your voice, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you give us receptive hearts and open ears, Lord, that we would see your glory in this place. I pray for myself, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. And Lord, in all things, glorify yourself and transform us into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. 
So this passage here, these, these two verses, Paul's making this transition from this deep theology, what God has done in saving people and creating a people for himself. And now Paul is going to make this transition. And these two verses here are really talking about true worship. What is true worship? Worship for Paul is the response to God's gracious salvation. Eleven chapters of every nook and cranny of this salvation. And the response then for Paul is worship. And so that's what we're talking about this morning. What is true worship? And we tend to have a faulty understanding of what worship is. When we say the word worship, we usually associate it with a certain activity, don't we? What, what, what is it? This is the audience participation. Singing. Singing is worship. So we'll actually make these comments like, oh, we didn't do enough worship in church today. I didn't really like worship today. Uh, we need to worship more. Uh, that kind of thing. Now the problem with that is this. Worship is not music. Music is just one glorious way God has given us with which to worship Him. It's just one tool in the toolbox of how we worship God. That's one of the reasons why we take the offering very, very often while we're singing. And, and we've had, we've actually had some, some feedback. I remember getting an anonymous letter once that said, uh, I don't think we should be interrupting worship to take the offering. So that's the problem. We don't understand what worship is. And so one of the reasons we take the offering while we're worshiping is to remind ourselves that this act of singing together is one super great thing God has created, but it in and of itself is not worship. Worship is a, a total thing, and that's what Paul is addressing this morning. And so in particular, four things in this passage we're going to highlight uh, about true worship, biblical worship. Number one is the basis of true worship. In other words, why? Why should we offer worship to God? What's the basis of, of worship? Why do it? Why offer worship to God? Number two, the nature of true worship. Uh, so what does is, what is biblical worship actually look like? What does it look like to worship the way the Bible tells us to worship? What does true worship look like? Number three, the means of true worship. In other words, uh, how can we worship God the way He wants us to worship? Number four, the result of true worship. What will this produce in us? What does true worship produce in a person, in the life of a Christian? And so uh, if you're afraid of things like classroom lectures, and that started to sound like one, don't worry. We'll keep it pretty simple. But, but uh, th there's these four aspects we want to look at, at what true worship is, in, in part to sort of get ourselves reoriented with what's God actually looking for in worship. Uh, and so... Number one, the basis of true worship. So let's just look at this passage here. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul, again, remember, this passage is a big transition. And, and one important thing in studying the Bible, and hopefully uh, if you've gone here for a long time, you, you, you've got this because we talk about this a lot and it is the, the reason we preach the way we do through entire books of the Bible verse by verse is we can't just lift. This is one of the much beloved passages in, in Scripture. And usually it's much beloved by lifting it out and setting it over here and it just stands on its own. Well, nothing stands on its own. It's a part of something. It's a part of a big unfolding story. It's a part of a letter, but it's a part of a section of a letter. And so 
these verses come as a part of a section of a letter, which comes as a part of an entire letter, which comes as a part of the entire writing of one individual, which comes as a part of the entire New Testament, and the part of the entire Bible, all 66 books. So as soon as we lift it out of that, we're going to have a hard time understanding what it's saying. And so as we look at this passage, we want to remember what's going on. This passage is a major transition, a major shift that Paul's making here in this letter. And so he begins this transition saying this, with this appeal to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which, he says, is your spiritual worship. Literally, the, the words here are, uh, it is, it is a, an act of worship of sacrifice to God, pointing to the Old Testament tabernacle. So Paul's using this imagery of tabernacle worship, Old Testament sacrificial worship, and he says, this is what you're supposed to do. Offer your bodies a sacrifice the way they used to offer animals. This time, though, we're not offering animals and killing them. We're offering your body, and your body is a living sacrifice. Now, just as we get started, we're going to address this in more depth in a little bit, but when Paul says something like, offer your whole body as a living sacrifice to God, because we're so familiar with this passage, we forget that uh, in our day and age, that's a crazy notion. Like, it's a, a ridiculous idea. Uh, think about the major cultural issues of our day. There's a couple of really, really big ones that dominate everything. Things like abortion dominates every conversation. So, so we see uh, somebody like Hobby Lobby, right? They're, they're in front of the Supreme Court right now. Uh, this week, they've been, the arguments began before the Supreme Court. And you've got people saying things like, Hobby Lobby hates women because they won't provide for, for uh, you know, birth control. Well, the truth is Hobby Lobby provides for 16 kinds of birth control. There's five kinds they won't provide for, and those are the ones that cause abortions. But because you won't provide for the ones that cause abortion, you hate women. Get your hands off our bodies, Hobby Lobby, right? It's a huge issue. Homosexual marriage is a huge issue right now. Now, some churches I know, they go super far and they're super hateful and evil about it. But the truth is, at some point, every Christian has to decide whether what, I think it's 1 Corinthians 6, whether what that says is actually true or not. People who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so, but we live in a world where you can't say that. So it sort of comes out sometimes. This preacher, 10 years ago, he read a passage of the Bible that said homosexuality was a sin. It's, that's a shame because I didn't know he was so hateful. didn't know he was a bigot, right? Well, what's going on with these issues? Why are these such hot-button issues? Well, the, it is because of this. We're in love with our autonomy. We're in love with our own authority over us. Nobody can tell me what to do about anything. And so if you actually talk to a, an honest, an intellectually honest uh, pro-abortion person, they will tell you, well, it may well be a baby, but... My body trumps that. So yeah, the baby has to die because of what I want. If, if you talk to someone who's intellectually honest about it or in, in any way informed, that, that's where they're at. Why? Because we're, we're in love with our rights. No one is going to tell me what to do. Now the problem with this thinking is it's distinctly unchristian. 
right? And so it creeps into the church and we buy into some of this stuff because our culture is screaming it and every cool person in the culture is on this side of the issue and then we look at our lame church friends and they're on this side of the issue and we go, I think I... And so we say these really stupid things like, well, I don't like abortion, but... Anytime you say the word but, it negates whatever you said before the word but. Right? I'm not a racist, but... <laughs> I don't like abortion, but... Right? And so, so we buy into these things in all kinds of little ways. It creeps in. And the problem is, this is the opposite of Christianity. This idea of, I am my own and no one can tell me what to do is a radically unchristian thing. Here, here's, here's Christian thinking. The Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, catechism is just questions and answers that teach the faith. And, and so, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is, what's my one comfort in life and death? Christian thinking says this, my one comfort both in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Christian thinking says, I am not my own. Unchristian thinking says, I'm my own. You can't tell me what to do. So in every way we buy into that, we are thinking in a radically unchristian way. And so it's a huge issue. So Paul says, spiritual worship. He says, offering our bodies as a, as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to God is spiritual worship. The direct translation of this phrase is divinely reasonable service of worship. This is a, a divinely reasonable thing to do. The Greek word is actually logikos, where we get the word logical. It is a logical thing to do. In light of what I've just said for 11 chapters, it's completely logical that we'd offer our whole selves to God. That's what Paul says. So, so, so what makes it reasonable? What makes it logical for us to offer our very lives of sacrifice, especially when we're already saying this is the complete opposite of what the entire world around us is telling us to do? It doesn't seem logical to everyone, right? It seems illogical to most. And so what makes it reasonable? In other words, what's the basis of biblical worship? So here's what Paul says. I appeal to you, therefore... By the mercies of God to present your bodies. Right? So what's the basis of our worship? The basis of our worship is the mercy of God. The mercies of God is the basis for our worship. It is the thing that makes it logical for us to offer our whole selves to God. So what mercies is Paul talking about? That's probably an important question. And the answer is found for us in this word, therefore. Therefore is a very important word in biblical interpretation. As the old saying goes, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to figure out what it's there for. It's a, that's an old saying, but it's a really helpful one. It's true. I heard that 115 times from my father before I was in kindergarten, I think. Whenever you see a therefore, find out what it's there for, right? That's true not just of biblical literature, it's true of reading, right? Most of the arguments against the Bible where they pull verses out of context they would never do with like a tale of two cities or something like that. It's just denying the basic rules of reading. But therefore is a huge word in writing and in literature and certainly in the Bible. It plays a very important function. And so here the word therefore plays the role of I'm going to connect everything I've said before this word with everything that's going to follow this word. It's a hinge that the whole thing swings on. Everything before therefore connects to everything after the word therefore. So, so the practical instructions that we're going to go through for the whole rest of Romans is tied to the deep 
theology and doctrine of the whole first 11 chapters by this word, therefore. So Paul says, therefore, in other words, given everything I've just told you, here's how you should respond. And so that word, therefore, clues us in. Paul's not talking about generic mercies. When we talk about the mercy of God in, in our culture, you'll hear people talk about the mercy of God who don't even know why God should have to offer mercy. I don't think anyone's going to go to hell because God's merciful. Well, why does God need to be merciful? God doesn't have wrath for anyone. God's merciful. Well, what's the point of mercy? And so it's not this generic sort of New Age Oprah-ish floating out there somewhere in the sky mercy. It's a very specific mercy that he's talked to us about for 11 long chapters. It, it's, it's the specific mercies that Paul's been telling us about. It's the forgiveness of sin, which starts with the fact that we actually need forgiveness of sin. This whole book starts with Paul going, listen, all of you are objects of God's wrath. God's storing wrath up to pour out on you, on everyone. So this mercy of God starts with a pronouncement of guilt and judgment and condemnation. It's, it's justification by faith alone, right standing with God, which no one has apart from Christ. This is part of the mercy of God. The fact that there's only one way to be saved, and it's Jesus Christ, is the mercy of God. It's not God being mean and selfish. Peace with God. Again, because no one has peace with God on their own. These are the mercies of God. Union with Christ. All the things we've talked about for these months. Freedom from sin and the law. Adoption as sons. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Election is the mercy of God. That God, before the beginning of time, chooses who will belong to Him, not based on anything they've done, is the mercy of God. The promise that God is going to keep, all that He saves, is the mercy of God. The cutting off of Israel, the inclusion of the Gentiles, that's us. This is the mercy of God. The fact that Israel will one day return to their king is the mercy of God. And so Paul takes 11 chapters of deep and often difficult theology. How many times have we gotten up to start a sermon over the past few months and said, all right, this is a tough passage. <laughs> Paul takes 11 chapters of some of the most debated theology in the Christian world, and he sums them up with one word, mercy. This is all about the mercy of God. And so... It's the mercy of God then that he says, in light of this, in light of all of this mercy, these mercies of God, in light of all of these, present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. And so this is Paul's pattern when he teaches, not just in Romans, but in other books as well. So if you've gone here for a long time when we went through Galatians, that's how Galatians worked. It starts out with a lot of deep theology and it moves on to how we ought to respond to that theology. In other words, orthodoxy precedes orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is what we believe. Orthopraxy is what we do. Right? Right belief, right actions. Right belief comes before right actions. I know I didn't need to say orthodoxy meets orthopraxy, but that's what it said in my notes because I just assume we all talk like that. <laughs> Such a... Sometimes I feel like a dork. I mean, I know I'm not. I know I'm really cool. But sometimes I feel like a dork. <laughs> All right. 
Yeah. But there, okay. All joking aside, there's a really important lesson that we need to learn here. Because most preaching today puts all of its emphasis on the how-tos of Christianity. Do this. Don't do that. We want practical things, not theological and doctrinal things. And maybe you even here, you must be miserable week after week, but maybe you go here and you do the same thing. I wish we were more practical. I don't know why we have to get into all that theology and doctrine, and I'm sure the last couple months have been miserable going through Romans 1-11. through But here's the problem. This is getting it absolutely backwards with disastrous consequences. There are serious consequences to getting these things backwards. We first have to ask why before we ask what or how. To use Paul's language here, for a Christian, everything we do, we must therefore do. That's Christian living. That's Christian thinking. We don't just have a list of things and go and do these things. Whatever we do, we must therefore do. There's a reason we do what we do. We've mentioned this before. Phil Vischer, the, the creator of VeggieTales, a couple years ago came out and he wrote an article saying, as great as VeggieTales was, here's what I realized we were doing. We were telling kids what to do without telling them why to do it. We were telling them how to act like Christians without telling them how to be Christians. And so what Phil Vischer's now doing is he's not working with VeggieTales anymore. He's doing a kid's program that is called Biblical Theology. It's, it's showing the whole story of the Bible so that we know why to do whatever we're going to do. This is a huge thing. This is a really important thing. And when we get it wrong, it's a big problem. So if we try to preach Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, what we're looking at today, without first looking at Romans 1 through Romans 11... The gospel of grace is distorted into a message of moralism. Christianity is perverted into a religion of legalism. The end result is this. God's truth is not honored. It's distorted and it's robbed of its power. Christians are not enabled to live the Christian life when we skip over all of the truth of who God is and why we do what we do. If we just do and not therefore do. We have no power to, ju- to just have someone say, hey, offer your body as a living sacrifice to God. God's nice. There's no power there. The power comes in seeing the mercies of God, which motivate us to offer our body, which make us go, there's, there's really no debate here. There's really no choice. Of course I would offer my body as a living sacrifice to God. So we must first see the glories of God before we can really worship God and live in a way that honors and pleases Him. So the mercies of God are the basis for our worship. Now what's the nature of true worship? We've already hinted at this. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul uses some pretty shocking terms to describe what Christian worship is looks like, what true spiritual worship looks like. It's this imagery of the sacrificial system, like we said. Now, now because we've never experienced that, we don't think it's super shocking. We've never seen an animal brought up in front of the people and then slaughtered in sort of a gruesome, bloody way and then thrown into the fire. Hey, sacrifice now has been made. 
So, so we don't catch the, the imagery that, that Paul's using here. We don't quite get the significance of what it means to offer our bodies a living sacrifice. So we can just sort of pay it lip service. But Paul's not saying we should bring a sacrifice. Paul's saying we should be a sacrifice. That's, that's a, a lot different. Now, to be clear, Paul is not talking about us being a sacrifice for sin. As the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is the one sacrifice for sin forever. Okay, so Paul's not talking about uh, we are a sacrifice that somehow pays for sin's penalty by us laying down our lives and denying ourselves that somehow we're making up for our sins. Jesus accomplished that on the cross. When Jesus said, it's finished, it really was finished. So that's not what Paul's talking about. So what's he saying? What does it mean to, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice? It, it means this. God doesn't just want our lip service. God doesn't just want our hearts. He wants all of us. God wants every part of us. That's what, that's what it means, offer your body. Body means the totality of your being. So, so you know, if, if I come into the office and my wife isn't here and I come home and she says, hey, was anybody else there? She doesn't mean, was there a, a cadaver in the room? She means, was another person there in their totality of what it means to be there? Right? So, so we understand. Body means the totality of who we are, all of our being. And he says, it's a living sacrifice which distinguishes it from Old Testament sacrifices. Old Testament sacrifices had to be living when they came to the altar, and then they stopped living shortly thereafter, right? They were killed. They were a, not a living sacrifice. But, but, but Paul's getting at something more than that, which is Paul has gone to great lengths to show us that we are dead people who have been made alive. We are alive, and we're supposed to take that life now and offer it back to God as a living Sacrifice so that God might be glorified through us. He says it's a holy sacrifice. Holy just means set apart for God. So we are to be a living in the new life that God has given us, set apart for God uh, in our bodies, in, in all that we are. So in other words, we don't just do whatever we want to do. Again, that is decidedly unchristian thinking to say, I'm just going to do whatever I want. Nobody gets to tell me anything. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You know what all means in the Greek there? It means all. That's what it means. It's a pretty tricky linguistic thing. Whatever you do, Paul doesn't just go like, listen, if it's between murdering someone and not murdering them, choose the thing that glorifies God. Paul says, hey, if you're eating, if you're drinking, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Again, whatever the Christian does, we must therefore do. We do all things to the glory of God. And that removes a lot of gray areas from our life, doesn't it? If we're called to be a living, holy sacrifice and do everything to the glory of God, a lot of those gray areas sort of disappear pretty quick. And we even find out we've been asking a lot of the wrong question. So when you talk to, you know, I'll use my college tennis players as an example because I don't want to throw any teenagers in the room under the bus. But you talk to, you know, somebody and they go, now, coach, 
In a dating relationship, what would you say is too far? How far can we go? Uh, and it's my delight to tell them, you're asking an unchristian question. <laughs> That's not the kind of question a Christian asks. The question a Christian asks is, in a dating relationship, how can I glorify God? In all things, how can I glorify God? That removes a lot of the gray areas, doesn't it? It really does. And so, Paul says, a holy sacrifice. All of our lives set apart for God. Set apart for God. Uh, next, it's an acceptable sacrifice. Let me say one more thing about being a holy offering. It's this. Our desire that is so strong in us to go with the flow of the culture is radically opposed to what it means to be holy. Not just because what they're doing is naughty, but because God said we're supposed to look totally different. Set apart means they're here and I'm over here. Set apart. Not with them. They should see something different about me when they look at me. I should see something different about them when I look at them. We are a holy sacrifice. And that's, it's acceptable sacrifice. Here's what this means. I think this is so glorious. It means it's pleasing to God. But remember what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about us, our lives. And he's talking about individuals. He's talking about me, and he's talking about you. We are individually, personally pleasing to God. This God that Paul has talked about for 11 chapters, the sovereign God and ruler of the universe, the one who controls kings, the one who controls nations, the one who, who builds up nations and then rips them down at his good pleasure, that God is personally pleased with you if you're a Christian. That's crazy. It's incredible. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice to God. So the nature of true worship is this. It's total surrender. My whole life is yours, God. All of me is yours. What are the, the means of true worship? So how do we do this? How do we become this total sacrifice to God? It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable Perfect. So how do we do this? How do we surrender the whole of our being to God? Well, the first half here of this verse, of verse 2, explains it for us. Total surrender is this. Being transformed by the renewal of our mind. This is what it means to be totally surrendered. So, so surrendering the whole of our lives to God, it actually begins on the inside. It actually begins with the way we think. It actually begins with our mind, and it works its way to the outside, what we do. This is what it means to be transformed, to have a renewed mind, to be totally surrendered with God. It begins in the mind, and it works its way out from there into our actions. This is why Paul spends so much time on what we should believe, on theology, on, on just digging deep in the gospel, and the implications of the gospel, and all these things that, that he's taken us through for 11 chapters. He spends so much time on that before telling us what we should do. And in fact, he spends 11 chapters on that and just five chapters saying, so respond like this. 
It's so important. The renewing of the mind involves both a negative and a positive aspect. So in the negative, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. In the positive, he says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So there's a negative, don't be conformed. In the positive, do be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Conformed here, this word has the image of being pressed into a mold. And so, so you're taking something and, and forcing it to fit into some sort of mold that's been created. It's an outward conformity to an external form, right? That's what, that's what a mold is. You are, you are making something conform to the shape of that mold. Being transformed is something different though. Being transformed means you've become something entirely new. It's not an ex, ex, exterior sort of shaping. It is an interior reality. It's a changing. So Paul says, don't be pressed into some mold. Be changed entirely from the inside out. What does that mean? Well, what it means in the context of what Paul's talking about here with worship is this. We become like whatever we worship. That thing that, that, we, that we worship. Our worship is, is really... It's that thing we give ultimate priority in our lives. It's that thing that, that we spend our time thinking about and working towards. The thing we consider most important. The thing that we spend our time on, that we think about. And all of that worship is aimed somewhere. All of our worship is aimed somewhere. It's, it's either aimed at our ruin or our restoration, ultimately. Right? So, so Paul starts Romans in Romans 1 by talking about a certain kind of worship that God's not particularly thrilled with. And he says they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And since they did that, God is storing wrath up for them. Now here in Romans 12, Paul says true worship of God is pleasing to God. So our worship is pointed somewhere. It's either pointed at something that pleases God or pointed at something that causes God to, to ha- store up wrath for us. And we're going to conform to the image of whatever that thing is that we're pointed at. Right? That's why, right, we've seen it before. Somebody starts spending all their time with a certain group of people and they stop looking quite so much like themselves and a lot like somebody else. That's what happens. That's how we are. That's, that's how God has created us to be because as we worship Him, we're transformed from glory to glory into His likeness. God made us that way, but it works both directions. We become like what we worship. Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2 says this, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. At the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So this is an active process. This is, a, this is the same guy who's talking here in Romans, and he's saying the same thing. There's an active process. Actively set your mind on the things that are above, and actively don't set them on the things that are on earth. It's an active process. So the question we need to ask ourselves when we look at the nature of true worship is this. What am I setting my sights on? What image am I being conformed to? What is shaping me? Are you mindlessly drinking out of the toilet of our culture? Just consuming whatever it has to offer up? What are the kind of things you're meditating on? And, and, and 
two of the most helpful questions we can ask is, what are the things that rob me of my affection for Christ? And what are the things that stir up my passion for Christ? And as we look at those two things, it brings to light for us where we ought to be spending our time and what we ought to be pursuing and, and what direction we're heading. What is shaping us? What is changing us? We're conformed to the world by what we uncritically digest and consume from our culture. But our minds are transformed when we meditatively digest God's Word. And so when we are not Amish, you might have noticed that, picked that up about us. We're not. So, so we are not advocating a sort of retreat from the world that says, let's pick a particular time period, 1800 sounds good, and let's try to be like that because they were a lot nicer back then. That sounded more mocking than I intended it to be. It's not meant to be a mockery of the Amish because we do this in all kinds of ways. Theirs is a very visible and easy to identify way, and we don't think we do that. But we do. So it's not a question of are we going to be in the world? We're in it. The question is are we going to be of the world? As Jesus says. Be in the world, but don't be of the world. So, so what does that mean? What it means is are we ever uncritically digesting anything? Because we shouldn't be. Paul praised these, the people in Berea because they didn't uncritically digest his sermons. Paul said, oh, they're more noble because they searched the Scriptures to see if the things I said were true. The Christian is not called to just uncritically drink in anything. And how dangerous it is when we do that. How dangerous it is when we just go to a movie and say, I'm unplugging the brain, just get entertained. We turn the radio on, I'm just going to disconnect, get entertained. When we've identified some pastors or authors that we like, and we go, well, thank God at least when I'm reading him, I don't have to think about whether what I'm reading is true or not. How dangerous it is when we do that. And again, that kind of thinking is not Christian thinking. So, what direction are we pointed? Are, are, are you constantly reading and studying God's Word? If God's Word is the thing, if meditatively consuming God's Word is the thing that renews our mind, then are we spending time with it? Are we consistently reading and meditating and studying God's Word? Are we meditating on it? Christian meditation is not unplugging the brain and letting it all filter in. Christian meditation is filling our minds, not emptying our minds. The Christian is never called to empty their mind. Never. It's a, an incredibly dangerous practice. And we see it in the Christian world. Now, in, in you know Eastern meditation, it's sort of like that. Med clear your mind. Let it all come in. Don't have any filters. Don't do that. But we actually do that in the Christian world, too. We'll do things like we're together in corporate worship. We go, now, everybody close your eyes and forget everyone's there. Just you and Jesus. That's not the purpose of the corporate gathering of Christians. Right? Meditating with God just means like sit in your room, don't read your Bible. You don't need any voices coming in. Just quiet. There's something to be said for being quiet as long as we're meditating on the glories of Christ. Not just sitting there trying to keep an empty mind. That, that's not Christian meditation. That's a demonic meditation. And so, so meditating on God's Word by filling our minds with it, thinking on it constantly, 
Are, are we doing that? If this is the thing, if this is the thing that renews our mind, if this is the way that we can actually be the kind of worshiper that God desires, who offers him whole, his whole self to God, if this is the way, are we doing it? Are you reading authors, listening to speakers whose writing and preaching is permeated with the Word of God? Or are your Christian books a little bit more like the Noah movie that just came out? The Noah movie that just came out, the director, Darren Aronofsky, before the movie came out, made the pronouncement, uh, my goal here is to have the least biblical, biblical movie ever made. I think he did it. I think he pulled it off. Uh, everything I've heard is that there is a guy named Noah, and it rains a lot, and there's a boat, and that's where the resemblances end uh, to the biblical narrative. The, and so Christians have sort of been up in arms about this, and then there have been some Christian pastors who have been like way too in favor of it just because they think the people who don't like it are uncool. Uh, and, and so there's been this whole debate raging, except we've got the same issues with our most popular bestseller Christian books. Well, it's not theologically accurate, but it sure gets me pumped. That's not a good reason to consume something uncritically. Are we pouring God's Word into ourselves with the preachers we listen to? I'm telling you, some of the most popular preachers and popular authors in the Christian world that you see on the bestseller shelves in the Christian bookstore that you see at the top of iTunes, they are not giving you gospel-saturated biblical teaching. They are giving you a couple of neat strategies for how to live your life better. And then they'll throw the word God in there every now and then because it seems like the right thing to do. What are we pouring into ourselves? This wasn't meant to be a rant against, against popular books and popular preachers, but it is supposed to be a little bit of a rant for us to say, what are we pouring into ourselves? What's our priority? Is our priority I got pumped, or is our priority that I was transformed by the renewing of our mind, which only comes one way? And so I would urge you, listen to what's being said in your books. Listen to what's being said by your teachers, and in every way that it does not line up with the Word of God, you need to reject it. I'm not saying you reject the person wholesale. If you went back through the catalog of all my sermons, you would find all kinds of times where I misspoke or I was just wrong. But we need to pay careful attention. There are some teachers whose habit it is to be wrong. And I would say, be done with them. And so, what is it that we're pouring into ourselves? What is it that we are filling ourselves up with, stuffing ourselves full with? Is your life saturated with Scripture? In all of these different ways, is your life just being stuffed full with this? And if not, how else do we expect to have a renewed mind? This is the means God has offered us to have a renewed mind. It's the means of total surrender to God. It is the means of true worship. The renewal of our mind. See, the, the renewal of our mind is not a mystical thing at all. It's pretty simple, really. Look at where you're spending your time. Look at what occupies your mind, and it will tell you what you're being shaped into. This is not a difficult concept to grasp. It is not a mystical thing like God will magically renew my mind. No, what are we filling ourselves with? That's, that's the direction our mind goes. But it's not enough to just read the Bible, to hear the Bible, if it doesn't change our minds. 
So here's a good question to ask. Does my mind ever get changed because of my reading or study of the Bible? Or do I merely find confirmation of what I've always believed or I want to believe? See, we, we have to let God's Word confront us. We have to let God's Word change us. So I'm not talking about, I'm going to read the Bible with fresh eyes, so it's all on the table. Jesus may or may not be God. Mary may or may not have been a virgin. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying we have all kinds of ideas about the way things work and about who we are, and the Bible needs to confront us at that. When we read the Bible, it should stick its finger in our face and tell us we're sinful. We should see all kinds of ways that we're missing the mark and not living up to God's glory. All kinds of ways where we're chasing after other things, and we shouldn't be chasing after every, everything like that. But does that happen when we read God's Word? Because that should happen when we read God's Word. We have to let it to confront us because then it can change us. And so one thing that means is this. If the Bible claims that something is true and everyone else in the entire world says it's not, this, by the way, is a decision you're going to have to make because that's the world we're living in. But if the Bible says something's true and every single person in the entire world says it's not true, then every single person is wrong and the Bible is right. That's what it means for God's Word to be God-breathed, for it to be God's Word. That's what we mean when we say the Bible is inerrant. When we say the Bible is infallible. The Bible contains no errors, and the Bible will never lead you astray. What it necessarily means is, even if every person in the world says what this says is not true, they're wrong. That's what it means. But there's all kinds of subtle ways that, that our culture gets a hold of us and leads us to go, well, 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 now, we got to rethink that a little bit. There's all kinds of ways where we're doing that. So, okay, what's the result of true worship? The result of true worship is this. It's the discernment of God's will. It's the discernment of God's will. Listen to what it says. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the end result of worship is this. It's a mature discernment of God's will. If we are worshipers of God the way He wants us to be worshipers of God, in the way He's ordained, it's going to have a result, and the result is we will be mature in our discernment of God's will. So the Christian who commits their whole being to God based on a profound awareness of His mercies, whose mind is being continually renewed through meditation on God's Word is going to have an increasing ability to recognize God's will, to recognize that thing which is good and acceptable and perfect. John Calvin described it like this. He said, it, it means looking at the world through the spectacles of the Holy Scripture. In other words, what it means to, to be conformed into God's image to where we discern His will is that we got a set of glasses on that we see everything through, and that set of glasses is the Scripture. That's what it means. So simply put, it's this. It means thinking like a Christian. That's the result of true worship, is that we think like a Christian as opposed to thinking like a pagan or a non-Christian. There's a big difference between the way a Christian thinks and the way a non-Christian thinks. I, I heard a great description of this yesterday uh, on the briefing with Albert Muller. Uh, he does on Saturdays a thing called Ask Anything Weekend or something. 
And somebody asked a question about different kinds of apologetics. But the comment Albert Muller made was this. There's a big difference between a Christian and a non-Christian on a fundamental level. A Christian and a non-Christian will both say 2 plus 2 equals 4. But they're not saying the same thing when they say that. The non-Christian is saying 2 plus 2 equals 4 because that's just sort of how nature works. And that seems to be what always happens. 2 plus 2 always seems to add up to 4. And the Christian says 2 plus 2 equals 4 because there's a sovereign creator of the universe who created everything to work exactly like this for his own good purpose and for his own plan and his own pleasure. And because he is so consistent and so in control and so powerful, 2 plus 2 is always going to equal 4. There's a huge difference on a basic level between the way Christians think and non-Christians think. And what Paul is telling us to do is think like Christians. That's what we're called to do. The renewal of our mind is not an option for Christians. It's commanded. To remain in conformity to the world, in other words, to think the way non-Christians think, is the sign that we may not have truly been converted. If we still think the way everyone else thinks, there's a chance that what we think happened to us didn't happen. Because the Bible's pretty clear on this. Salvation brings with it a certain response in a person. It has a certain effect in a person's life. And so Paul says, think like a Christian. Now, now when he says we'll discern God's will, he's not talking about God's will the way we usually talk about God's will. Just like we usually talk about worship and we're not talking about what the Bible usually talks about. The same is true with this phrase, discerning of God's will. Because what we usually mean is, who should I marry? Where should I live? What job should I work at? I just need to know what God's will for my life is on that. And that's good. I think we should bring all of those things under submission to God. I just don't think that we should always think He's going to tell us. I don't think we should always think, God's going, I think we should always ask. I don't think he's always going to tell us. Sometimes we need to just get a legal pad out and make it two columns, pro-con, and make a wise decision with the intellect God has given us. All of that surrendered to God in prayer. You with me? And so, so that's usually what we're concerned about with the will of God. The Bible's not concerned with that. You see, just because I think it's wise to offer everything in God in prayer doesn't mean there's a biblical precedent for asking God where you should work. The Bible doesn't care where you work. The Bible cares about something else. God's will for you has less to do with what job you're working than it does with who you are. What kind of person you are. What foundation is your life built on? Who is it that you worship? And so, in the Bible, God's will has everything to do with His moral will. What pleases God? That's what we can discern. The one that really matters the most. Because if you're a lawyer who pleases God or a contractor who pleases God, you've pleased God, good going. You're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Not, there, were, there was a case I needed you to try back in 89, but since you were a contractor, my plans fell through. That's not what God's concerned with. That's not what His will is concerned with in that way. Now again, lest I lose some of you, every decision we make ought to be bathed in prayer. Because we ought to be that kind of person. Our whole lives ought to be that kind of life. So I, I'm not saying don't do that. But, but the big picture here is what Paul's talking about. And that's this. To know God's will, we only need know His Word. 
So anything that's not in here cannot be as important as what is in here. That's why I say where you work, where you live, even who you marry cannot be as important as the revealed will of God in his word or else it would be revealed in here. There'd be a list. And so, so that's, that's what I'm trying to get at. We, to know God's will, the way Paul's talking about, we only need to know his word. And knowing God's perfect will is a prerequisite to obeying God's will. We can't obey God's word if we don't know God's word. We can't obey his will if we don't know his will. We can't do what's pleasing to him if we don't know what's pleasing to him. You see, the mind leads and the heart follows. That's how we're created. Now, the message that goes out is what? Follow your heart. The message the Bible preaches is your heart is wicked. Don't follow it. It's fickle. Follow what you know. Christianity is a faith based in truth. Truth. We're saved by truth. The gospel, the proclamation of the gospel saves people, not counting goosebumps on your arm. And so... The mind leads, the heart follows. See, there's a definite intellectual priority in the Christian faith, and we're not crazy about that. Like I said, all of our popular books and all of our popular preachers will say, no, no, no. We, we've gotten our mind in this too much. We've gotten too intellectual with this whole thing. But that's not how God has created it, and that's certainly not what God's Word says. The truth is, correct actions and emotions proceed from correct doctrine. That's why Paul spends all this time and then goes, therefore, do. Correct actions and emotions come from correct doctrines. A Christian's intellectual life and devotional life go together. It's not two separate categories. Well, here's my mind and here's my devotion to God. No, it goes together. Where the mind leads, the heart will follow. And so so in every way that we say these kind of things that that it's possible to think too hard on who God is. In every way we say well, it's possible to get too intellectual in our pursuit of knowing God. In every way that we talk about dead orthodoxy. We don't want dead orthodoxy. We want the Holy Spirit life. The problem is that dead orthodoxy is an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. Orthodoxy just means uh right belief and living in keeping with God's Word. How could that ever be dead? How could that ever be dead? A Christian's new heart will follow their renewed mind. So to pit the spirit and the intellect against each other is a false dichotomy. We don't have to do it. It's not either or, it's both and, and it always has to work like that. So when people say, don't give too much doctrine, focus on the practical stuff, that shows a very shallow understanding a very shallow understanding of christianity because there's no basis for behavior apart from truth there's no reason to have practical instruction apart from truth of who god is it's directly tied to who god is psalm 111 2 says greater the works of the lord studied by all who delight in them so here it is it's the intellect it's study it's it's focusing the power of our mind. It's working hard. Greater the works of the Lord studied by those who delight in them. It's the, the hard work of thinking and it is the delight of experiencing, working together. Great are the works of the Lord studied by those who delight in them. So if you have no desire to study them, you don't delight in them. 
If you have no delight in them, your study of them is deeply flawed. Right? It, it all goes together. So, so Paul doesn't give us any kind of exhortation, any kind of do this, until he's given us 11 chapters of doctrine. John 13, 17, Jesus says this, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Okay? So before we can be blessed in doing something, we have to know something. That, that, that's what Paul says, that's what Jesus says. So there's nothing more practical than the knowledge of God. There is nothing more practical. If you struggled through the past few months of going through Romans 1 through 11 and you were just holding on until we could get to chapter 12 where you knew it would lighten up a little bit on the theology, I just want to put a plea out to you. There is not anything more practical than theology. There's nothing more practical than, than doctrine. Knowing who God is. Seeing God for who He is is the most practical thing a Christian could do. That's where all of our hope comes from. It's where all of our joy comes from. It's where all of our peace comes from. It's all, where all the power for sustained Christian living comes from is we are a people who are called to see God for who God is. And that changes things for us. So if our life doesn't match up with our theology, that's what we're always afraid of. We're going to get consumed with theology and our life won't match up. Our theology is wrong. Good theology necessitates the right kind of living. Or you've got it wrong. You've made a mistake somewhere. There's no such thing as dead orthodoxy because orthodoxy is truth and practice. Theology needs to be applied to our lives. We live a certain way because something is true. That's what Paul's saying. Dig deep into what's true, and that will produce in you something. It will be completely natural, completely logical, completely reasonable for you to respond to that truth by laying your whole life down at the feet of Jesus. But that's what causes it. Otherwise, we go on these little bursts of a couple weeks at a time, and they're just not sustainable. So let me close by saying this. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. It is possible for us to live in a way that, that pleases God. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Pursue the knowledge of God. Read your Bible. Listen to gospel-saturated men and women. Whether it's in written form or they're speaking, whatever it is, pursue these things. Meditate on the perfections and the mercies of Christ. Pray that the Holy Spirit will daily transform your heart and your mind so that you'll know God's will, so that you'll desire God's will, and your very life will be an offering of true worship to God. Let me just close with this, and worship team, you can make your way up here as I read this. Watchman Nee wrote a, a book called The Normal Christian Life. And he ends the book like this. He's talking here about the prophet Elisha and the Shunammite woman, and, and, and here's what he says. I always like to think of the words of the great woman of Shunam speaking about the prophet whom she had observed but whom she did not know very well. She said, Behold, now I perceive that this is a holy man of God which passes by us continually. 2 Kings 4.9 It was not what Elisha said or did that conveyed that impression. It was who he was. By his merely passing by, she could de detect something. She could see. 
What are people sensing about you? We may live, leave many kinds of impressions. We may leave the impression that we are clever, that we are gifted, that we are this or we are that or the other. But no impression left by Elisha was an impression of Elisha. It was an impression of God. This matter of impact upon others turns on one thing, and that is the working of the cross in us with regard to the pleasure of the heart of God. It demands that I seek His pleasure, that I seek to satisfy Him only, and I do not mind how much it costs me to do so. There must be something, a willingness to yield, a breaking and a pouring out of everything to Him, which gives release to that fragrance of Christ and produces in other lives an awareness of need, drawing them out, and on to know the Lord. This is what I feel to be at the heart of everything. The gospel has as its one object the producing in us sinners of a condition that will satisfy the heart of our God. In order that he may have that, we come to him with all we have, all that we are, yes, even the most cherished things in our spiritual experience. And we make known to him, Lord, I am willing to let go of all of this for you. Not just for your work, not for your children, not for anything else, but altogether and only for yourself. And he ends with these words, oh, to be wasted. It's a blessed thing to be wasted for the Lord. When we wrap our minds around the mercies of God that Paul has spent 11 chapters digging deep into, it produces in us quite naturally a response that says, oh, that my whole life would just be poured out at your feet. Paul says that's true worship. True worship is more than singing songs. True worship is more than I'm in a bad mood, so I'm going to put some music on. True worship is that the Christian thinks like a Christian, and that begins with, my whole life is yours. I'm pointing everything I've got in your direction. I'm going to passionately seek you with my mind and my emotions and my will. And all of it is going to come into conformity of what I know to be true about you, namely your mercies. That produces in us a certain kind of fruit. 